0: Good morning. We are going to be reading out of Ecclesiastes 12 this morning. So, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades, when the people rise at the sound of birds, but but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and the desire no longer is stirred. Um, Then people go to their eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the wall, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. The conclusion of the matter, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jordan. Good morning, everybody. We're, this is it. We're there. How many of you have been with us in the whole journey through Ecclesiastes from beginning to end? Just by a show of hands. Oh, good. Good. A bunch of us have. So this is it. We're wrapping it up today. And then this summer... Uh, Summers are always amazing in San Diego. Tons of time for barbecuing, getting out in the water, surfing. And so we want to just build community this summer. We're going to be in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Discerning how to become a community of love, something that our society needs more than ever. We'll explore what love is, how our Trinitarian God is a dance of love, and how out of that dance of love, we learn to love him, be loved by him, and love one another. And truly, without each other, we can't know God. And so this summer, I want to exhort you to press in to the community around you, get to know others, and learn how to smile and look in each other's eyes, because in so doing, you'll see the face of your Father who loved you so much. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we are asking that rest would be our way of being, that this church would be known as a people of peace, people of quiet a non-anxious presence in the midst of our city. We pray that resilience would be our way of doing as cynicism surrounds us, as we begin another political cycle going into 2024 and the debates and the anger and the uncertainty and the rage ramps up. May we be a people who with quiet hearts and joy-filled steps, resilience, pastor, the people that we've been sent to. May we be a prophetic presence in our city, heralding the truth. And may you anoint each of these as guides, as shepherds. May you draw those here today who have yet to surrender to you as king. May this be a day where they are awakened to the reality of their God who made them and loves them. And may we together as a family here in our city serve and bless. This summer, God, I pray that you would so tether us and bind us together that our love for one another would declare to the city around us that we are indeed disciples of Jesus and that you would make more disciples of Jesus through us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, like I said, guys, this is it. This is the last session in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so as the book concludes this morning the author steps in and has the final say. So for those of you that were here for the beginning of these teachings, how many of you remember that the book of Ecclesiastes actually has two voices? Raise your hand if you remember that class. Okay, good. Well done, students. Gold star. So there's two authors. There's two voices throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The first and the primary voice was that of an ancient wisdom teacher who went by the title Koheleth. Koheleth essentially means gatherer, assembler, He was a philosopher professor type, cynical, jaded, nearing the end of his days. And he was writing to his listeners his experiences about pursuing the good life, finding meaning in life. And we have spent months, literally almost six months, listening to this man's thoughts, Koheleth's perspective on the meaninglessness of life. Now, the second voice, the second voice is the actual compiler of the book. The second voice is the actual author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we only hear from him at the very beginning of the book and here at the very end as we conclude it. Now, the author of the book, he too is like a philosophy professor of sorts. And what he has done is he has taken Koheleth's thoughts, and he's had his philosophy class read Koheleth's thoughts, much like a philosophy professor would say to his students, class, today we're going to read all the works of Nietzsche. And then we're going to have a discussion around Nietzsche's thoughts, and we're going to see how he prompts us and how he bothers us, how he moves us, where we agree with him, where we disagree with him. And so as the author had his class, his students, his mentees read Koheleth, he had them read him not to just agree with him wholesale, but to challenge them, to get them thinking, to, you know, push against the status quo, so to speak, to broaden their perspectives, So the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, he actually operates more like a really good intellectual and spiritual mentor for us. Whereas Koheleth, he's a little bit more like a mascot. A mascot is representative of a team. He's not the actual team, but he's representative of the team. And so though Koheleth is more than two millennia removed from you and I as modern San Diegans, he represents our voice. And he so parallels, his experience so parallels the modern experience because we all, like him, are today pursuing the good life in a culture of affluence and wealth and great liberty and great power for most of us in this room. we Most of us in this room hold places of privilege. And so we spend our days trying to find meaning, trying to succeed, trying to live rightly, only to discover in certain moments, and they're terrifying moments, that, oh my gosh, this is all vapor, It's all a meaningless grasping of smoke. No matter how far I progress, no matter how high I get promoted, no matter where I'm at on the social hierarchy, at the end of the day, what does it actually mean? This is the teaching of Koheleth. It's all Havel. This is the Hebrew word that he uses over and over and over. Emptiness, nothingness. So here at the conclusion of the book, the mentor not the mascot, Koheleth, but the mentor, the author. He steps back in and he says as he closes the book, okay, class, you've read all of Koheleth's thoughts. You've sat under his cynical, jaded thinking for six months now. Here's some of my closing thoughts on him. Class dismissed. And we go about our day and we're done with Koheleth and we head to First John, thankfully, next week. <laughs> So as we've seen throughout the book, let's summarize what Koheleth says here at the very end. Koheleth has this obsessive, he is obsessively fixated on death. Remember that session, memento mori? Memento mori. The ancients called it death meditation, or remembering our death. And it is the foundation of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is the central theme of Koheleth's thinking and teaching. Memento mori. This was both, for Koheleth, a positive and a negative fixation. On the one hand, by keeping death at the very forefront of his thinking, always holding death out in front of him as he tried to experience the good life, Koheleth understood that all humanity must be focused, that we should not miss the moment, that we should enjoy what we can while we can because death is a coming. That runaway train is on the tracks and it's heading right for you and I. On the other hand, This death fixation created in Koheleth a severe cynicism and jadedness because for Koheleth, death robbed life of any purpose. Now, he did acknowledge in his thinking that there was benefit to living wisely. There was good in pursuing righteousness. There was wisdom in exercising moderation in life while we live. But for Koheleth, when he looked at the world around him, he realized that even the wisest, most prudent, righteous among us could never escape death, and death robbed all meaning from life. So as the book concludes, Koheleth here, and I mean he gets really caustic, He gets really bitey. It's just Koheleth at his worst or his best, depending on how you're reading him and what mood you're in when you come to meditate in him. He's warning his readers this morning about the onset of old age, something that a young church like ours needs to hear. I think the average age of our church is probably under 30. So you need to listen up, kids. Here we go. Koheleth's going to have it out with you. What Koheleth does here is he uses intense imagery. And he uses these really vibrant Near Eastern metaphors to describe the aging process. Now, as is always the case with Koheleth, he is much more like you and I in our view of the elderly than he was with his contemporary society. Remember, Koheleth was deconstructing his faith traditions. He did not agree with many of what his faith traditions and his culture said was respectable and valuable. Ancient Near Eastern cultures tended to revere the elderly, to esteem them, and to honor them. The old and ancient Near Eastern cultures, and in modern Near Eastern cultures, they were to be respected and sought out for their life and for their experience. Grandma and grandpa, they were actually to be cared for in the home as permanent fixtures within the family system. The idea of a retirement home was anathema. It 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 didn't even enter the mind of an ancient Near Easterner. Aging in these cultures was actually embraced as a gift because aging garnered wisdom and fruitfulness. And gray hair, Proverbs tells us, was a crown bestowed upon a life well-lived, or the loss thereof was a crown of hair or headlessness. So our culture, like Koheleth, our culture worships youth and despises aging. We are a culture at war with getting old. We're embarrassed by our age. We cover it with whatever tools we can, and sometimes we overcompensate by acting half our actual age when we actually do know better. The elderly of our culture, they are pressed to the margins in a society that values production and power over presence and wisdom. Here at Neighbors, and part partly because of my wife, my wife has this incredible heart for the elderly. We actually believe that the elderly are one of the most forgotten and marginalized people in the United States. They are a massive mission field for our church. In September, we're going to do a full Love Thy Neighbor Day, and I would pray that some of our small groups would go into elderly homes and just be there with the people. Just love them. Just be with them. But like our society, Koheleth did not look forward to getting older. He was actually angry about the aging process. And so as he writes his poem to conclude his thoughts, he likens the human body and aging to a household that is falling apart and about to be destroyed by this inescapable storm. Let's read through it briefly and make comment. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. All of you youngins in here, remember your creator. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, the keepers of the house tremble. Strong men stoop, the grinders cease because they're few. Looking through the windows grows dim. This is ancient Near Eastern metaphor. It's pictures for the human body and what happens to the body as we begin to age. So in verses 1 through 3, Koholeth says, For the aging, everything in creation, sun, moon, stars, they begin to lose their light. They're just not as vibrant as they once were when we were young and full of dreams. The keepers of the body, most Hebrew scholars would say he's alluding here to bones and sinew and tissues. And it all begins to sag and ache in weird places. And it begins to hurt for no reason at all. The grinders, a very vivid imagery of our teeth, begin to fall out. (laughs) and now are missing, so they cease being able to grind. And then Kohelet gets really raw with the brutality and the humiliation of an aging human body when he says, the doors to the street are closed. Old Testament scholar, Trimper Longman, he does not shy away from what Koheleth is getting at here. He literally says, the closing of the doors cannot help but suggest the blocking or disability of all or some bodily orifices. <laughs> Hand me the prune juice, please. It's disgusting. And so the sound of grinding fades, verse 4, when people rise up at the sound of the birds and their songs grow faint. For many elderly, sleep becomes a real struggle for many as they age. My dad goes to bed at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and wakes up at 2 in the morning. It's the weirdest thing. They get into bed late and they rise early and then their frustration is compounded because as they rise to what used to be the sound of the birds, the sound of the birds they can no longer hear. And maybe most tragically in the human body, as we age, the brain begins to deteriorate and we lose what we consciously understand to be our mind. When people are afraid, Kohala says, of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms, grasshoppers drag itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Forgetfulness in this scenario as the brain deteriorates leads to uncertainty and anxiety. If you've ever been around somebody suffering under the initial stages of dementia or, or Alzheimer's, there's, a, there's an innate fear in them. They often revert to childlike behaviors and they go back to their deepest memories trying to find some sort of security. And so unfounded fears, here Koheleth describes fear of heights that they never had. It's a brain that's trying to make sense of reality that it once understood but no longer can understand. And oftentimes as the elderly progress in dementia and Alzheimer's, their personalities radically change. They become almost different people as the flowering beauty of youth, the almond blossoms, passes away. And the hoppy energy of life begins to just sort of drag along like a grasshopper that's lost its vibrancy. And so sadness about a life gone by and sadness about a life about to end settles in. And Koheleth summarizes this section of his poem basically saying, old age robs life of pleasure. That's what you've got to look forward to, kiddos. (laughs) Goheleth's poem of lament here, though, concludes where he always does, with a direct, full-on fist fight with death. He hates it. He's obsessed with it. It bothers him deeply. Remember him, Ecclesiastes 12, 6, Ecclesiastes 12, six seven. Before the silver cord is severed, the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, the wheel broken at the well, the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. As age hobbles and slows and diminishes the vitality of life, eventually that which we all consider the most valuable, silver cords, golden bowls, the wheels that moved our life, the water that sustained our life, these all eventually are going to sever and break and shatter and go dry. And at the moment of dryness, the body returns to the dust from which it came. Now, brief comment here. In some ways... And in, actually, I should be honest, in so many ways, as I've spent months now meditating in this guy's head, I have resonated with him over and over and over, chapter by chapter. Yep, you're right. Yep, you're right. Yep. You're right. Meaningless, meaningless, hevel, hevel. Why are we doing this? Over and over and over. And here in his last poem, this process of aging, I have actually resonated. Now, I am relatively young. I'm only 46 years old. But in my mind, that makes me halfway to 92, which makes me kind of old. But I'm not old. And here's the thing. Even at 46, I am now entering those stages of life that our culture fears and wars against. The middle years, which is where I find myself... Honestly, they are a reckoning with life and reality as it really is. I no longer have the convenience of my dreamy, idealistic 20 year old view of the earth and life. I've seen a lot in this last 20 years since I was 26. And I am fighting the aging process just like every good red blooded American fights the aging process. I have been for 20 years now a fitness, nutrition, kind of I'm fascinated by the human optimization. Give me all the tools. Give me the data. Put whatever I can get into my body to optimize the system. Longevity hobbyist. I love reading about these sort of fringe scientists who are working in the longevity space. They're they're, they're quackies, but they're fascinating. And for, for 20 years now, I've been trying to find a way to edge out. I want to live to be 120. I want to be like Moses, where the vim and vigor hasn't left my eyes. And so I've spent a long time, and I to this day, I'm studying these things. I love human human movement, and the chemistry of nutrition, and the pursuit of holistic health, all these things, but no matter what I do, no matter how much kale I eat, no matter how much I scale my CrossFit workouts, no matter how much time I spend in zone two, no matter how many mindfulness practices I engage in, no matter how much data I take with my whoop and whatever else they're going to give me in the coming years to help me understand what's going on in my body, I wake up some mornings, I'm like, why does my knee hurt right now so bad? I can't. I have discovered over this last couple of years, read without enough light. I'm this guy now. If there's not enough light, I'm doing this thing. <laughs> I've never had to do that. That's a new experience for me. Uh, God bless my wife. We go driving, and for some reason, I get old man brain when we're driving. I'm just like, where are we going? I don't know. Missed the exit. Dan, where are you going? Do you know where you are right now? Yeah, I'm in the car with you, and I love you. <laughs> It used to be I could eat whatever I wanted. I could eat like a horse, and I was just like a skinny little piece of rebar. And now if I look at a piece of cake, it's an automatic five pounds. I look at it, five pounds. There's just nothing I can do about it. And over and over, I am discovering, and again, it's either aging and my brain deteriorating or my ears. My wife will tell me something, and it just is like, I don't hear it. And so I'll have to say, what did you say? Over and over. And so this term midlife crisis... This crisis, it comes from this increasing awareness that the power and the energy of our 20s is now more than two decades behind us. And I can see how a crisis could arise as the strong man that I once was physically and mentally and still am in that space. But I'm not going to be able to keep up with the slow sagging of bone and tissue and mental capacity that bothers me to my core. It bothers me. And yet, I find this hope and this joy, even in Koheleth's cynicism. If we read him carefully, he he has these moments of clarity where he commands us on what to focus on as we age. And especially as we close the book, if we'll yield not to our mascot who represents all our cynicism and jadedness, Goheleth, but to our mentor, this author, as the book concludes, we have a pathway to old aging and death and resurrection. And it's really beautiful. Goheleth manages at certain points to get these teachings into this poem, and he redirects the attention in the most powerful way. Memento mori, remember your death. Memento day. De. Remember your God. Memento more, if you're 20 years old, it's not dark and macabre to consider that you won't be 20 forever. You won't live forever. But in your days while alive, memento day, remember your God. Remember God as you meditate on your death. Remember God's reality in all points of life. Keep God's reality equally in front of you as you consider where you are in this moment with joy and blessing and gratitude because it is going to end. Koheleth's death poem here, it's opened and then it's bullet pointed with commands to memento day, to remember God. Verse one, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Verse six, remember him, he says. Verse seven, the spirit returns to God, an allusion to or a pure focus on God in the midst of our death. And so we've seen clearly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, how when we neglect or we suppress or we forget God's reality or we ignore eternal life, that is, life that will exist after this life that is going to end, when we ignore and suppress those realities, then it creates in us a corruption of soul and a bitterness of perspective, and it pollutes the way that we see and live our lives in this moment. Koheleth taught what he taught. When you read the chapters of the middle section of the book of Ecclesiastes, you are listening to somebody who has deconstructed and limited. They are, Koheleth had a reductionistic view of who God is and what life and life after life is. And it ruined the way that he lived his life, it robbed it of meaning. Of course, If this life is all there is under the sun, then yes, existence is pitiful and meaningless and hopeless. But if there is life after life under the sun, if there is a God who is present right now in your lives, if there is a God who is purposeful in every situation that you are facing, if there is a God involved in the details of every single one of our circumstances— every person on this planet has that reality, then this life and every scenario, every circumstance, it is powerful, it is full of infinite meaning, and there is nothing but hope. Nothing but hope. When we forget God's presence, understand this, this week, today, when we neglect God's presence and purpose and power, we are literally, the psychological term is disintegrated. Disintegrated. We are no longer whole. We're no longer complete. What and who we were designed to be, it splinters when we don't live in that present reality of who God is. Heaven and earth are literally split from one another. Soul, body, mind, and spirit are separated from one another. Adam and Eve, they did not keep God's word. They didn't remember his presence, his command, and their lack of remembrance dismembered creation. This is the cruel effect of sin in our bodies and our beings. It's why I can wake up tomorrow morning having done nothing wrong and my back aches and my knees got a weird thing going on and I don't know how it happened. You know how it happened? We forgot God and it's dismembering my physical body. My forgetfulness of God is dismembering my physical being, my, bio- my biology. And this dismembering of creation in our bodies and our souls this dismembering and disintegrating of everything that is good and right and true and holy and beautiful, this is the work of Satan. And it is not God's will for any of us. Remembering God remembers our beings and restores wholeness. If you feel like you're losing your mind, you're split asunder, crushed, uncertain, scared, overwhelmed, frustrated, remember God. And it will remember. It will remember your being. It will remember your perspective. It will reintegrate and create a wholeness and a rightness about what you do and why you're doing it. The author, our mentor and the countervoice to Koheleth's cynicism, he steps in here as we wrap up and he begins to question Koheleth's primary thesis statement. That's what the author at the end of this book is doing. The philosophy professor. He's saying, are you guys sure you agree with everything Nietzsche said? He's a pretty bitter dude. That's what this guy's doing with Koheleth. Here in verse eight, the first person voice of Koheleth shifts now to the third person description of Koheleth's thoughts from the mentor. So this line, verse eight, it could be read in many different ways. Let me give you a few examples. So let's read it just neutrally. Meaningless, meaningless as the teacher, everything is meaningless, okay? Could be read like that. But the author could be stepping in here and he could be reading it this way. Class, Koheleth says everything is meaningless and meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He has definitively said it. I agree with him. Class dismissed. Go live your meaningless lives and die. (laughs) He could be reading it ominously. The author could be stepping in here and he'd say, Man, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Class, does that scare you? Does that bother you? Does that overwhelm you? Good. It should. Koheleth intended that. That's the way that he could be doing it. But I am not at all persuaded that this professor philosophy mentor, I don't think he had the, the students read the works of Koheleth just to scare them. I certainly don't think that he had him, had them read Koheleth to, to have them all say, yeah, I sign off on Koheleth's perspective. I think he wanted them to learn how to refute and think clearly, think more broadly beyond what Koheleth had fallen into. I think that the professor author's tone here is more questioning, and he's asking the class to consider, really? Really? Is this the way that you and I want to view life and aging and death? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Is it, is it really all meaningless? Everything is meaningless? Apprentices of Jesus, 2,000 years or 4,000 years, whenever he was writing. Are you sure you want to live a life where everything's meaningless? Do you agree with this guy? Now, because. Koheleth was such a sophisticated thinker. The mentor here does respect Koheleth as a thought leader, and he honors the fact that Koheleth certainly gave it sort of the old college try as he was attempting to discern life. So the author here gives kudos to Koheleth, verses 9 through 10. Not only was the teacher wise, well done, Koheleth, but he also imparted knowledge to the people he did teach. He pondered and searched out and set out order in many Proverbs the teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now, that may sound like the author is giving a commendation. Hey, read Koheleth as if everything he says is upright and true, but there's a trick here in the Hebrew that the, I think the English translators missed. Even as he's paying his respects, the author is using a challenging voice, and when he says what he wrote was upright and true, those are, those are a couple of sort of unique Hebrew words that convey the nuanced ideas of what he wrote was honest and firm. They, they're more literally translated honesty and firmness. In other words, the author says, Kohelet did his very best to assess life, and then he used really raw, honest words about what he saw. For any of you that have been sitting through these teachings over the last six months, you're like, whoa, that was raw. That sounded pretty real, the way that he said that. And the man was firm in his convictions. But the author is questioning here. I'm convinced He's questioning, were Koheleth's convictions solid? He was honest, and he said it in a raw way, but was he honestly wrong? And so the author asks us to consider what we've experienced in this book, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So our mentor says here that, of course, there's some wisdom in Koheleth's perspectives and words, but without God with this reductionistic view of who God is and without life after life feeding into his perspectives, his words become like painful goads. All you church kids know what a goat is. Some of you may not know what a goat is. A goat is like a, it's just basically a pointy stick that shepherds would use to poke sheep painfully to get them to go where they wanted them to go, guiding them into wherever they wanted them to be. And so here, the author says, Koheleth's wisdom without eternal life and without God in the center of it, the fullness of who God is, is really more like a goad. And it's just poking us, pushing us painfully along towards what? Towards existential crisis. Goading us towards loss of meaning. Goading us rather than gently guiding us to still waters and green pastures in God's power and meaning and reality. Koheleth here, the author says, is like, he's like, it's like he just nails these painful nails into our soul. And his teachings just begin to afflict our minds and bodies with anxiety and hopelessness, if he's right. And then the author warns here, these types of teachings, they come from one type of shepherd. And it's the type of shepherd who has neglected, suppressed, and forgotten who God is and what God does. So our mentor issues a warning. He says, shepherds like Koheleth that goad us along in our cynicism and nail their doubts into our belief structures, they're a dime a dozen in a world like ours. Be warned, my sons and daughters, he says, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there's no end, and of much study where body. So notice, notice here. There's a parent-child dynamic between the mentor, the author, and his relationship between his readers Compared to the sort of cold clinical relationship of Koheleth, the author, he's warning out of love and genuine concern, contrasted to Koheleth, who is cold and bitter, and he's, his warnings come out of anger and frustration. And our mentor here, he warns that we cannot add what we most need to Koheleth's words. And what we most need in Koheleth's teachings to to save us from anxiety and existential meaninglessness, what we most need to add to Koheleth's words can't be added because you can't add faith in God and hope in eternal life to somebody who has deconstructed and reduced those things to nothing. You can't add it. There are literally Hundreds of thousands. I I am paid by my community to read, study, and think. I cannot tell you how many books there are out there that say the exact same thing in just very subtly different ways. There are hundreds of thousands of books out there that are laboring to teach us about the good life teach us and explain to us why life is the way it is to give us wisdom on how to succeed, how to be joyful, how to find fulfillment. And these shepherds and these teachers and these types of books, they come from every discipline in the huge gamut of study and human experience, science, psychology, sociology, economics, politics, spirituality but try as we may to add a sense of certainty and a sense of purity and a sense of joy and a sense of hope to merely human perspectives that are devoid of God and devoid of life after life. If these perspectives from science philosophy Economics, find whatever book you want on the good life. If they neglect God in any way or they ignore God's purposes in what that discipline teaches, they will miserably fail to fulfill our souls. They will leave us saying, This is meaningless. It's meaningless. So the disciplines of human study and thought and guidance, just purely human perspective, cannot add God to their methodology because God consumes everything, He is everything. So our mentor warns us, when you're young and when you're old, don't try to piecemeal together a life that's trying to add God as a supplement to your human ability, your human philosophy, and your human perspective. You have to go all in on the reality of who God is and what God has done, and then read your philosophy books, read your science books, read your sociology books, read your economic books with God at the very center of that, and let that Be the foundation and the formation of the way that we pursue the good life. Now, he closes with these key words from the Old Testament. The the mentor author closes with key words from the Old Testament that, that provide the path to true wisdom and the path to meaning and joy and salvation. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. You want the good life? Fear God, and we've talked about fearing God being the, the, the desire to obey. It's the pathway to wisdom. It's, it's honoring his will for creating us and creating this world, fearing him, and we fear him by keeping his commandments. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. The author concludes this book saying, Class, you should really ask some serious questions about Koheleth's material. Use him as a sounding board. Where are you slipping into resignation, jadedness, reductionistic thinking about who God is, the complexities of a broken world and a chaotic system that feels out of control? But you've got to ask questions about that that are honest. And then at the end of the day, if you want to chart a course forward, if you want a pathway towards fulfillment, and instead of grasping at Hevel, fear God because he is going to judge and make right all the wrong in the world. All the wrong will be made right. Therefore, make him the all-consuming force and focus of your life and make obedience to him in every facet of your being the primary push of your life. Nothing less than this will equal anything graspable. Death is going to take everything else. So, that leaves us with the closing question. Five more minutes, and then we'll come to communion. How do we do this? Two simple things that I'd love for you guys to focus on, talk about in community group this week. The practice of his presence and following his son. The practice of his presence and following his son. So memento day, remember God in all things. And remembering God in all things is a practice that must be cultivated. I've got a curious question for you that just came to my mind. We're sitting here in church. We're singing songs to God. I'm sitting here talking about God. You're listening to a teaching about God. We have God's word open on our laps. We're surrounded by God's people. How many of us have ever had this moment in the middle of church where we're like, whoa, if this is real, that means God is here right now. I've only had rarely 20 years of leading the church. If I've been in the middle of a sermon, like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is he's he's here. <laughs> like if this is real, this huge God is alive, he's gonna judge everything. Ooh. I think I better get my personality and my desires out of this system and just listen. How many of us have ever had that moment early in the morning where you're just trying to grind through your checklist, quiet time? Gotta get up, gotta do my Bible reading, gotta get my coffee in, gotta get to work, gotta do this, gotta do blah, blah, blah. But then all of a sudden we're stopped in our tracks in that moment of like, just a weightiness, just like, oh, if this is real, what I'm about to do matters for eternity. Just the remembrance of God, because we are so dismembered and corrupted by sin. The remembrance of God is a cultivated practice. Our minds have to be retrained and remembered with our bodies. The inertia of our bodies and and the triggered systems of trauma from when we were young and the neural systems of our body are just careening us through life. This is why the mystics throughout history have always said everything about Christianity is slowing down and paying attention and molding the mind in a very slow and intentional process that requires training, and effort. So our split minds and our souls are distracted, and this generation faces the greatest challenge the church has ever faced. Social media and the hijacking of our dopamine systems are dismembering you. The next time you've been on TikTok for four hours, I want you to think of your soul as dismembered with every swipe. Hopefully that graphic image from a father that loves you will just lock in. I don't say that to be gruesome or shocking. I'm concerned for the church. And as I approach the back half of my life, I'm giving my life to hand a church to my kids and especially to my grandkids that is vibrant and alive and not drunk on the wisdom of the world, trying to add God as a supplement and a little vitamin here and there, but a church that has been inflamed with the fires of holiness and love changes this world, legitimately changes this world. So how do we do that? It's the basics. The scriptures reintegrate our mind according to his mind, according to God's mind. I know plowing through Leviticus is hard, but in the realm of the Spirit, in the mystery of who God is, when you're plowing through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, and then you get to that verse in Philippians where you're like, that makes sense and that feels good. That's all the reintegration of your mind according to God's mind. Read your Bibles daily. Read your Bibles daily. Let them begin to reintegrate your mind. It will make sense if you'll put in the effort. Prayer, both with words and in silence. This is what draws us close to the purpose of God. The sweet counsel of the church. We are reintegrated. We are remembered with God and in God together as we come together in community. We practice God's presence in the committed, intentional presence of one another. And that's what we're going to study all summer. Joy is what you experience when somebody sees you and their eyes light up. That's what we were designed to experience when God looks at us. But the only way that we get to experience that joy is when somebody looks at us and goes, I am so incredibly happy to see you right now. What's happening in your bodies? Because I am genuinely happy to see you right now. In community is where we are remembered in our souls. In community is where we are remembered as what humanity was always intended to be, and then reorient your attention. What you pay attention to, you become. What you pay attention to shapes your life. I'm already just trying to avoid getting into the political conversations as things begin to ramp up and we head for 2024. Because last year I tried to be Mr. W- or the last cycle I literally tried to be Mr. Wise guy. I was like, I'm going to listen to far right and far left, and then I'm going to listen to center people, and I'm going to come out and I'm going to give the answers in the political conversations. And as I paid attention to right insanity, left insanity, political insanity, I became insane. <laughs> and asked my wife and my kids, Dad, you've lost your mind. What you pay attention to, you become. And it's, it's a fool's journey to think that we are not being shaped by the things that we are focusing on. And our Father intends to partner with us. This isn't just some magical incantation, incantation. Oh, God, change my heart. Change my mind. Please, Jesus. And then avoid and ignore him for the rest of the time. This requires intentional focus, deep discipline, a training of the soul in preparation for old age, death, and resurrection. So a final note on the presence of God. Christian theology teaches that God is always present. So in the moments, whether it's Julius, thank you this morning for leading us, or Joshua, whoever's up front singing songs, and all of a sudden there's the goosebumps, and they hit that note just right in the minor chord, and you're like, oh, God, you're so here, and I love you. Yes, God is in that moment, and that's not just emotion. God gives you those sensations through the biology and the neurochemistry of your body. It's incredible. But I'm here to tell you, at 46, because I am... I am officially at a place in life where I can say I've seen a few things and I have seen a few dark days, to say the least. In darkness and in confusion where right now you are afraid and you're pretty certain you've been abandoned, he is more present there than you could ever imagine. The sacred spaces of the desert and dryness and aloneness and fear and uncertainty. And some of you this morning right now are so angry at God. You feel like he's just blasted you and beat you down to nothing. But I'm here to tell you, if you will hold on and bow in prayer, God will come and meet you there, and you will find that his hands took the beating into himself. He took what this world wants to do to you. And trust is what he's building in those places. He is present in the dryness and the mundanity of Monday morning back to the grind. God is present in that place. And so you cultivate this remembrance of God's presence. One of my heroes in the faith, 17th century kitchen monk named Nicholas Herman, a.k.a. Brother Lawrence of the resurrection. How many of you have ever read Practicing the Presence of God? Every one of you, please this morning, hop on Amazon. It'll cost you like four bucks. Practicing the Presence of God, Brother Lawrence. Phenomenal book. In this book, this little French monk, he's uh, writing to an assortment of friends, two friends in in particular, about his development of what he just called the practice of the presence of God. Communing with God, remembering God's presence, and communing with God in all points and places. Brother Lawrence would say the most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons, at every moment, without limiting the conversation in any way. Brother Lawrence, one of my favorite lines in the entire and all of his work, is he describes doing dishes in ecstasy, just worshiping God as he does dishes. I have yet to experience that, so my progression is still stunted quite, quite a bit. If you want life to its fullest, and you're stirred to fear God this morning, keep his commands, practice his presence, and then recognize this is what Jesus did, so follow his son. We're almost done. Jesus said in his ministry, in his in his ministerial career, in his public ministry, he would tell the crowds, look, I don't say anything that my father isn't saying. That's a pretty audacious claim. And he would say, I don't, anything that I do, my father is already doing it. I'm just doing what my father He was so remembering the presence of God, that he could say what I do right now with this child, rebuking this Pharisee, correcting this disciple, teaching this crowd, multiplying this bread and loaf and fish. What I'm doing right now, I'm just doing what my father's doing Is I remember his presence. Jesus' sense of God's presence and purpose in the struggle of life, even to the cross, was so clear and compelling because Jesus' actual mind and body and soul lived in constant union. Jesus was the perfect human who was totally remembered, fully remembered, fully whole. Now you and I as good Christian theologians, we sit here and we say, well, that was Jesus. He was God. I could never do that. And you're partially right. And you're also very, very wrong. Jesus was fully human, just like you and I. He was just as tempted to be distracted and forgetful and neglectful. His dopamine system could have as easily been hijacked by TikTok as yours has been. But his intentions, his focus, his discipline, his desire, the joy set before him, obedience to his Father and the salvation of his people drove him to disciplined behavior that formed him and shaped him. And so he is our example. He is the standard by which we now say, how might I not say anything that the Father's not saying? How might I not do anything that the Father's not doing? And then when we don't say what the Father said, and we don't do what the Father is doing in that moment. Jesus lived as our representative in our place before God for all times. So when we forget and neglect and ignore his presence and purpose, he then, Jesus took the, the goads of God. He took the painful nails of God into his fallen, into himself, into our fallenness. He, took, he absorbed all that. He absorbed death for us. And then he rose from the dead literally, physically, And then the Spirit poured out on you and I, and we now lean into the Spirit through the Scriptures by the sweet counsel of the church, allowing God to remember us as we remember his presence in isolation and in community. And the gospel is the means by which we continually cultivate God's presence over and over. Memento day, remembering God. It's to remember that God became one with us. God died for you. He raised in victory over all of our fallenness and forgetfulness. And he is empowering you right now. Whether you got goosebumps or it's the mundanity of Monday morning, he is with you, in you, for you, desiring to guide you and empower you. Memento day. So for me, in this process, what should be a midlife crisis As I rage against the turning of the tide, and I begin the back, the back half, that downhill slide into my own grave at whatever point God so chooses to take me, this has actually become more of a middle passage for me, not a midlife crisis. I find myself realizing that I am literally passing from one stage of life into the next. And it's more like a new adolescence for me right now at 46. You know when you're 13 and weird stuff starts happening to your body and you've got like all this energy and you're like, I know it's out there and I don't know what to do with it. I know there's this future in front of me, but man, hormones, what is happening to me? This is sort of like a reverse adolescence, (laughs) less hormones, weird stuff happening to my body, but there's this future out there that I'm just so anticipating as my children are preparing to go off into their adulthood. And Alexis and I were looking forward to the back half of our life, not with the vigor of a 20 year old but really with wisdom, with a life that is being well-lived, memento more, I know I'm going to die. Therefore, memento day, for the whole back of my life. I want to remember him till I see him. In this process of growth, discern where you're being painfully goaded to overcome life and aging, and instead learn to be gently guided by Jesus and his spirit through mundanity and obscurity, honor and blessing, poverty and riches, uncertainty and hope, And let the very presence of God in Scripture and solitude and prayer and community guide you. Remembering that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is what's animating your deepest desires. All of us are a nasty cocktail of fleshy, shallow desires. But if you're a Christian this morning, your deepest, deepest, deepest places that sometimes it's just drowned out by the cacophony of everything else that this world and our bodies throw at us, your deepest desire is to be one with God and one with the person sitting next to you. That's really what we're doing. And so aging now looks forward to becoming more and more prominent in the presence of God until that final moment when death departs us from this body and we await this resurrected body that will live in his presence forever. We are closing the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you all stand with me, please? Memento mori. If you're 19 today, I'd love for you to leave this place and think about your death for the rest of the day. But think about it in light of the death of Jesus Christ. And that one day, the death that he died, it has consumed what St. Paul called the last enemy, crushed. Think about your death in light of the victory of Jesus. And then today, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and for the rest of this month, and and until your death comes, memento day. Cultivate the practice of the presence of God. Today, what would it feel like in the boredom of Monday morning and an irritating coworker and a boss that I can't stand and overloaded with schoolwork and summer classes and no waves (laughs) because it's spring? What does it mean to find meaning and joy and hope beyond our imagination, it's memento day. It's remember that he is present. He's more present to you than the air you're breathing right now. And he's more in love with you than you could ever think or imagine. For one last time, let's read our liturgy together and we'll sing and have communion. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments.